What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's Resistance in Residence artist is actor and director Elizabeth Carter. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Kat. Thank you so much for joining. I'm excited for this conversation. Um, Elizabeth, we're going to start with the personal, a little bit about you and specifically where and how you grew up and what was your family like? Oh, man. Um, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, um, and was one of 10 Black students in my high school. Whoa. Maybe 20, maybe 20. (laughs) I'll be generous. Um, My father was a professor of sociology um, at the University of Oregon, and my mother was an elementary school teacher. So um, I grew up with teachers all around me, and um, we were that family that the dictionary came out on the table. Mm. You know, um, my dad would talk about his work. He was a very um, accomplished demographer. Um, so uh, we had a lot of math at the table. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Because I know I'm not the only one who just went, what is a demographer? So a demographer is someone who studies populations and migrations. And um, so the, the the math that is used, like, so there's a very famous, um, so we all know the census, Right. The census counts people. That is demography. You're counting oh, okay. who is in the country, where do they live, how do they sort of fall in um, ethnically, um, age-wise, what do those family units look like, how do those people move from one place to another? So that's like really basic demography. Um, and it has a lot of statistics. My father, along with a man... Um, uh, Ronald Lee created a method, which is a basically a mathematical formula in which you can plug in all these numbers and all of these different factors, and you can forecast the birth and death rates of populations wherever they may be. So you could go to Uganda and you could project how many people will be there in 10, 20, 30 years. Wow. So our census uses it. Um, it's um, so he's kind of like a rock star in the demography world, um, but he is no longer with us. So that's the kind of stuff that was sort of floating around in in our brain. But I was like this little artsy kid who um, who loved math, um, but uh, really fell in love with theater. Well, and talk to us about that. When and how did you discover the theater? Well, theater was something that I came to probably, I think, I feel like I've always done it, but I will say formally, probably like middle school to, you know, and then high school was where I really got into theater. I had this amazing teacher and um, he had this sort of very rigorous program for a public high school. Um, And we did like sometimes we would do 10 shows in a year, which is insane. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're talking like one acts and things like that. I got to direct in high school. Um, I did all sorts of shows. um, And 
it was really the first place. I also sang. Um, I was in a jazz choir and all choirs. I also painted. I was kind of like an all-around arts kid, but theater was where I felt like the most challenged. And so I was like, I'm going for that. And I remember being like 15 years old and looking at my mother straight in the face and saying, don't you understand? This is what I want to do for the rest of my life, right? Very passionately and and in that wonderful, like teenage, full-throated, um, heartfelt way. And my mother said to me, how could you know that you're only 15? <laughs> and I spent the next 30 years proving that that was true. <laughs> so. I, I was going to ask you like, yeah, which came first, the, the, cause you were also a director, the acting or the director, but this looks, sounds like they sort of, you know, came together for you. Um, all at once. Do you prefer one or the other? I guess I should say like, what do you love about each? Yes. I think that's a better way. It's hard to kind of compare them. Um, I guess I always was a director, but I just didn't know it. Um, I love acting because I love getting deeply into a character. I love finding the nuances and the, and the complexities and the contradictions within characters. I love um, sort of that visceral feeling of when something locks in and you can feel yourself sort of disappear a little bit and you can give over. I love the giving over to the character and to the moment and to the connection that's happening on stage where something feels like it is um, channeled through you. That is so powerful. And I love to be able to create those really real moments to be able to move people. Um, so in a very personal way, like I love, and I love actors. I love, I love that sort of like being fresh and trying to have your mind um, uh, sort of ready to listen and respond authentically in each moment. So that's what I love about acting. Plus you get to like be all sorts of crazy people and learn all sorts of amazing things. Um, what I love about directing is that I'm able to feel like I'm, I can even impact those around me more. So I can have a vision. I get to really deeply collaborate with all different kinds of artists, actors, designers, musicians, um, and I get to have a message and I'm leading the message instead of being an instrument of someone else's message. And so as an actor, I'm an instru instrument to someone else's vision, but as a director, I get to create the container that I always wanted. And then I get to share that and impact other people, transform other people, hopefully, um, through the work that I do. And that's not just the audiences. I want to transform audiences. I want to change them in some way. I want them to walk out feeling like something shifted for them. But I also want the artists who I'm working with to also feel that way. Yeah. My prayer before I do any show is may the people that have come into this theater walk out changed and transformed. Yes. Like that's a piece of every prayer before 
um, I hit stage. I want to back up to something you said um, about those magical moments that we have on stage where mm-hmm. you are, you're being channeled, right? Yes. And um, the giving over of yourself to the character. I mean, you're married. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I've had, you know, my kid and, and partners um, over the years. And sometimes, right, like they can't deal with me. <laughs> because, right, let's, like, let's take Tasha, for example. Like who, I mean, I love her. And yes. who wants to live with Tasha for 10 weeks, right? right? Like, no, how do you, and you are also a mother. You have a partner, you have yes. a wife, and you have a mother. Um, can you talk about how that the, all of the ways in which you embody your art, and, and I've, I've, I've seen you in director mode as well, yeah. and we'll talk about that in a minute. Right. Um, how do you balance that with, like, also having to be present for your family? I mean, you've got, you've got a kid at school, so, like, present, yes. present. Yeah. Yes, present, present. And uh-huh. and especially when I was acting really um, intensely, I do more directing now, but when I was acting really intensely in those earlier years, um, my drive home was really a way that I had to use to let go, um, play music, um, uh, kind of stretch, uh, you know, take those moments when I arrive home to let go of the character so that I could kind of be with my family. And, um, and I'm the person who gets up in the morning, so late nights and early mornings. Um, but I do remember years ago, I had this one, I think, oh God, who was the playwright? I can't remember. But it was like, um, it was like future, it was Afrofuturist, and it was like gangs in the future basically. Um, and I remember I was, you know, I was playing this role and I was swearing. I was cussing up and down every which way. And it's not like I don't cuss, but I mean, in the role and just to feel it in my body and I would come home and I would just, my mouth would be going and I'd be like, Oh, who is this person (laughs) that I am? And, and the way I was feeling, the way I was feeling about the world and how angry and like, edgy and like, I just wanted to push up against things. And I had to be like, whoa, I didn't even realize what was happening to me. And that's when I started to learn like, oh, this is what happens when you give over. And um, anyone who knows me, I'm somebody who smiles a lot. I'm um, fairly optimistic and um, love to be playful and goofy. That's just my natural natural sort of uh, personhood. But I love going to the dark places. So when I go to those dark places, I really have to counterbalance for myself. Otherwise, um, life, yeah, can be hard. And I have to come home and I have to download. And my poor wife, oh God, Um, you know, the downloads, right? And I have to be like, oh, I have to have other people to download to because you're also, you know, that that gets really um, tricky. So, yeah, nobody wants to live with somebody who's you know suicidal or right. somebody who's you know, um, or you know terribly manipulative. Um, but I I learned fairly early on after that experience to be like, oh, this is affecting me. So I need to understand that's what's happening because that's the first thing is being cognizant of it and then to be able to counterbalance that with 
something opposite or use a, like a what we now call de-rolling, which we didn't have back in the 90s and early 2000s. People didn't talk about de-rolling, which is like to take the roll off. Yeah. And yeah. so a lot of people have different ways that they do that. And I do it by often my drive home is like where I process things so I can walk in the door and be a human being. <laughs> right. Elizabeth, I've, I've had the pleasure of knowing you as, as like your career is, is just starting to really soar. I mean, you were directing all the time everywhere. Um, I like I open theater Bay Area or whatever, and th- there you are, um, which is, it's beautiful, right? It's beautiful to watch Black women rise. Um, that said, navigating the world of theater is challenging, period. Um, but it's even more so challenging as women, and particularly women of color. And I'd love for you to just talk a bit about the obstacles you faced and overcome, um, and how has the intersectionality of you, your identity as a queer Black woman um, impacted your experience? You know, it's been a hard road. Um, I started acting right out of college in um, early 90s and in an era when there weren't a lot of roles for me. And one of the tools that I ended up using um, in those days was to get credibility was to do Shakespeare. So if you could do Shakespeare as a black woman, you suddenly had credibility. That opened a lot of doors for me. But I will say, I still ran up against so much stereotyping as every person of color does and still does. I I don't want to act like it doesn't happen anymore. Of course it does. Um, And I sort of just kept my head down and kept moving, but it kept me from doing a lot of things. I never, um, I would have gone probably to LA, but at the time, the stereotypes around what black women were supposed to look like on television, I knew that psychologically I could not handle that. Mm -hmm. It would have devastated me. It would have Mm -hmm. torn me up. Mm -hmm. So I didn't go. Um, I stayed, I did theater. Um, I'm a tall black woman. I'm curvy. You know, I was like, not, you know, I wasn't like want to press my hair straight and become, you know, a size two and wear tons of makeup all the time. And I, I just couldn't, I knew that my body image would just go in the toilet. So I stayed and I kept building, but some of the obstacles that I've run into um, as an actor and as um, a director is the idea that someone else knows better what your experience is than you do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've had um, directors who shall remain unnamed um, <laughs> tell me, um, you know, to speak more a certain way to um that i had one director working i was playing an african woman and this director was trying to direct a ritual on stage who was white and this is the days when a white director could have directed this play i don't think today in the bay area that would fly um and i was i was 
it was so wrong. I knew in my core that it was wrong, but there was no support for me to go to, to figure out how to get the support to say, to push back and say like, I need this kind of support. I need, you know, this, because also in theater, you know, word of mouth, you, everyone's always afraid that they're not going to work again. Right. That's right. That's right. So if the, if, somebody's talking that they're difficult, they're this, they're that, you know, then you don't work. Um, so it's hard in that power position with a director to figure out how to navigate that. Um, and so it takes a toll. It takes a cost. Right. Um, and then as a director, what I've found really challenging is and it's it's funny as a director i'm way more fearless than i ever was as an actor i'm just Mm. so fearless in that i have no problem telling an artistic director i don't i i think that choice is not the right choice Mm -hmm. i want to do this trust me in my vision right i will push back as a director in ways and it's also age but in ways that as an actor, I never felt I had the agency to do. And, but I will say that it still happens that, you know, an artistic director or someone might come to you with this, like, we'll give you this project, but we won't give you this project, right? Or they'll try to to push you in a certain direction and I have to hold my ground but I'm old enough now that I will do that to say, no, here's the truth of this. This is why I cannot cast these two people. This, you know, I'm very conscious about how I cast in terms of um, making sense of the world. And because I direct a lot of people of color and also I'm a queer person, um, I really love to tell those stories but I like to tell them really conscientiously and really thoughtfully. And someone will throw something at, oh, well, we could just, we could just do that. No, we can't actually, because here's why this doesn't make sense because here's the message and here's the, what you're projecting out there. And my name is, in fact, I, here's the burden of the queer black woman director I, my choices will be scrutinized 10 times more than another director. Mm. Mm -hmm. If I cast these two people and there's a dynamic there that is unforeseen because white supremacy is like an infiltrator um, in all of our brains. um, Let's say I make a choice and I don't realize there's a dynamic there. I don't, I don't think about that, how that's that little moment is going to read. Who's going to get, are the actors going to be looked at and said like, Oh, well that, you know, that doesn't work. That's sending this horrible message. No, it's me. I'm responsible. I'm responsible for what I put on that stage. And Mm. so I carry great response. I feel a great weight to make really thoughtful decisions in casting, in representation, in authenticity, 
because it's not just my word. It's like how I want the world to look, how I want the world. And that doesn't mean I don't want difficult things on stage. I don't want to um, show things that are harsh. I don't want everything to like suddenly be all figured out and perfect. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I'm interested in the complexities and the and the conflicts and the um, the depth of our you know messiness. I love all of that, but I am responsible for being clear that that is the message that I'm putting out there, and the burden of that keeps me up at night. Um, I feel like I've there's so much there and we have so little time to unpack. I know, um, I, know. I know. I want to start with something that actually brought joy to my heart, right? Mm. You and I were recently at a playwrights retreat together. Um, you were there as a director and I'm there as a dramaturg. We're working on our second project together. One of the things I know, so for the listeners, right? So there were these amazing playwrights and, and we spent the days listening to reads of their plays. And one of the things I noticed was that many of the playwrights, almost all, first of all, were writers of color. Yes. But because you know, I'm connecting this back to like what you talked about being true in the 90s and 2000s, which was also true as I was emerging as an actor, made the unfortunate decision to go to Los Angeles to experience all of the things that you avoided. Oh, no. Um, um, so I'm sitting, and, it, and really, like, it, I, I, it almost stole my soul because my soul is my craft and I couldn't even audition any. Like, I, yeah. It was awful what happened, the trying to fit uh, into that box that just is so unattainable for the vast majority of us. Anyway, right. positive things I said. So almost <laughs> all of these these playwrights are artists of color, but perhaps for me, even more powerful um, was that they were very clearly writing for their audiences. Yes. We talked about this a bit, right? There was no whitewashing involved. And and, and what, what comes to my mind specifically, in addition to, to the play that we're working on, was um, the, the play that took place... Um, partly in Pakistan and mm. and the whole scene spoken in Urdu with no translation. Yep. Right. Like, like that legit would not have happened a decade or two ago. No. And I'm just wondering like from your perch and your long you know, life inside of theater arts, what has changed and what, what does that like give you hope for in terms of the future and young black actresses or actors, humans that are coming behind us? What I love about it is that there is this, unapologetic tone of like, I'm going to speak the play that I need to hear that I needed to have, as opposed to like what, when people now write for what will be produced, especially people of color, it doesn't have the same impact or it doesn't, I will say it can, but what I'm seeing is when people now, when young playwrights are writing from their own voice, the play that they want to see or that they are excited and they are passionate about, the impact, we can feel it. We feel it. Everyone feels it, whether it's for you or not for you. I also think we're starting to teach audiences that not every play is for you. You can be an observer. I always say this. I, I said it when I directed Starfinch's Bondage. I said, you're a guest in this house. Mm. Like this is, I'm happy to share this play with you. It's not for you, but you get to be here. You get the privilege of being here, right? So I think of these plays as like, 
this play is for that one, two, three, five, fifth person. If to touch and connect with, and then everyone else gets to be a guest in the house. I love that. And that doesn't mean we don't care for them. We don't take care of them. We don't welcome them, but it doesn't mean that we have to change what the, what we're saying or how we're saying it in order for you, you have to come willing to try to interpret. And for me as well, when I go see plays that, you know, aren't, aren't black, that aren't my experience, we all have human experiences that all connect, right? We're human beings. I find deeply connected to, to all sorts of work that isn't about my culture. But I don't assume when I go in that they're speaking to make sense of it for me. I come curious and hungry to know. And I think that's what we're starting to teach audiences. So that's what gives me hope is that there is a hunger and a desire and a curiosity to connect and to see where we're different which is completely beautiful and wonderful, our differences, and possibly where we also have similarities. But I see this like new uh, sort of generation of playwrights who are thinking like, no, I want to talk about the specificity of, of my experience or the specificity of this person's um experience. And, and in that, I mean, some of these plays were beautiful, right? Pakistan, Hawaii, um, you know, a, a Ugandan and Chinese young men um, falling for each other. I mean, all of these beautiful s- stories that are very specific. And I, I just am finding that to be the richness that we have right now. And it does give me hope that for me, that is, that's a political act, right? The personal is political. So if we can be our authentic selves, then I hope our children, I hope my son has the opportunity to grow into who he's supposed to be, his full self. You know, if we can honor, if we can honor those things, um, as artists, you know, we reflect, we translate culture, right? So that's how the culture is changing. It's like, there's now in this world. Now there is space for my nerdy, goofy, Oregon born black girl from interracial parents who married in 1967 and wants to say something really deeply, wants to go hard, wants to be be bold and brave, um, loves ghosts and ghost stories. And like, there's space for me now. I feel like 20 years ago, the space was so small that they allowed us to operate in. And now I feel like not only is it, is it expanding a little bit, but we're also saying like, no, I get to exist. And we're pushing the walls out and making the space bigger 
for other people too, not just okay. ourselves, right? Well, that's that's just how black folks roll, right? Like right? We, we we get when we when we get a <laughs> we get a win, and actually, usually works like it's our win, but it benefits other folks, you know, even more. Is usually right. how that rolls out. And that's okay, right? Because we want right. all of us to be free. Right. Elizabeth Carter, I could talk to you forever, oh, but I've got to too. wrap this up. Mm. Um, just real quick, uh, let people where to let let people know where to find you because you are all over the place. Is there one place where it lists all of the amazing things that you are doing? Oh my goodness! Um, well, I have I you can look at um, me on Instagram, Elizabeth Carter Arts. That's the most current things that are happening. So it's Elizabeth Carter Arts, and I also have a website, also Elizabeth Carter Arts. And uh, my next project is um, sign my name to freedom. That's going to be at um, with SF Batco mm. at the Z Space, mm. um, March 29th through April 13th. It is the songs and life of Betty Reed Soskin. Oh my! And oh my gosh! I love Betty. I have yes. interviewed her twice. She's um, for the show. Oh my gosh! I love her so much. Oh, yes, and I, it's oh, it's wow. a musical. It's her it's her songs. And it's her life and it's a musical and there's Ariel and it's going to be joyful and magical and there's a fantastic cast. So uh, we'll I'm have to really have you excited. Back on. We're going to have okay. you back on um, yes. and, and I'll pull segments from my interviews with her. That Okay. We will definitely pump that up. Yes. Um, Y'all go, go to the website, go to Instagram, follow Elizabeth Carter. You're listening to Law Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. And this week's Resistance and Residence artist is actor and director Elizabeth Carter. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kat. Blessings to you. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. Our Resistance and Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>